Hello, St. Andrews. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father and we thank you that we know you are our King. And so we pray, Father, that you would humble us before you, that we would know that what we are hearing now in this book of Daniel is the word of the living God, the word of our King forever. We pray, Father, that you would lead us to bold and hopeful faith in you, our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please do have Daniel chapter 1 open in front of you as we begin our journey in this letter over the coming months. I'm excited to be looking at this together. There is an outline in the Dropbox folder that came with the email, so that may be helpful for you. But at the very least, please do have Daniel chapter 1 open. As news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ began to spread around the world in those early years after his resurrection, many of the early believers in the early church lost their lives at the hands of the mighty Roman Empire, an empire that stood completely opposed to their faith in Jesus as king. But their faith in Jesus was not a blind faith. It was founded on the reality that the cross of Jesus was empty because Christ had risen, that he was king forever. It's recorded that in the early church that they would mark the death of Christian martyrs, uh, firstly by recording the year that they died and then adding these three defiant words, Regnate Jesu Christo, this year in the reign of Jesus Christ. How do you live as one who knows that God is king of this world in a world where that does not seem apparent? How do you keep bold and hopeful faith in a world that is set against faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Anyone who has lived as a Christian for any length of time will know that faith in God as king is under constant pressure and challenge in a world like this. Now, we see it globally in the era that we live in, this era of a pandemic. It asks questions, is God really king? Uh, You see it in the marginalisation and even the compromise of the Christian voice in the public square. Uh, You see it perhaps in our own experience, trying simply to live by faith in the real world outside of church. How crucial then it is as we begin the letter of this book of Daniel together today to know that this word of God in the book of Daniel is designed to stir our hearts to faith in a faithless world. Uh, Here in Daniel is a word that is crucial for those who are not yet convinced that God is king of this world or king of them. And here is a word that is also crucial for those of us who do believe but need help in our unbelief when we live in a world set against our faith. Now, the book of Daniel that we begin today is set in Babylon in the 6th century BC. We'll speak more about the date next week. Babylon is a a city completely set against God and set against the people of God. And the battle between them begins in the very first verse, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look at it with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Uh, This battle for faith uh, involves, we're told here already, two kings and two cities. Jehoiakim, king in Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar, king in Babylon. Uh, Two significant cities, uh, Babylon and Jerusalem. 
I wonder if you've noticed how uh, names of significant cities in our world and even towns perhaps here in Australia uh, come to symbolise the character. You only need to mention the name of the city and you can picture the sort of character the city has. Uh, in this last week, uh, as a family, we, we had a holiday up on the north coast of New South Wales in Mullumbimby. And as I told people we were going to stay in Mullumbimby, the, the eyes were raised. And I became aware that Mullumbimby is the counterculture, uh, alternative lifestyle centre of uh, New South Wales, if not Australia. Uh, we loved it. I wonder if, if uh, we were to try and describe what Sydney is like, if people hear the word Sydney as a city, what, what characteristic comes to their mind? Well, Jerusalem and Babylon, the two cities that are on display even here in the first verse, are hugely symbolic in understanding the Bible's account of all human history. These two cities play a pivotal role. And they're crucial if we're going to understand the, the, the significance of the battle for our faith in God as king that we are a part of. And so to these two cities that are introduced in verse 1, Babylon, or if you look there in verse 2, Babylonia, it's called there. And there's a little footnote if you look in your Bibles. Uh, that phrase Babylonia literally is the land of China. And that's a geographical reference. It's only used a few times in the Bible and significantly so. Uh, perhaps the most significant is Genesis 11, where this land of China, this place of Babel, was the very spot geographically where humanity defiantly tried to build a tower all the way up to heaven, the, the Tower of Babel. Uh, a tower that exerted human self-rule, that tried to build God out of the picture where humanity aims to build a city where, where God is completely absent. They have no need or want of him. In Genesis 11 and here in Daniel 1, there is this geographical location, Babylon. But throughout the scriptures, it comes to signify any human rule, be it personally or whether a whole nation that asserts independence from God, that says it doesn't need God as king because I am my own king. Uh, places like our own secular city of Sydney, a city that is proud and powerful and noisy and, well, would say it has no need or want of God. But trace this city of Babylon through the scriptures and God actually reveals to us the future for the city of Babylon. If you go all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation uh, chapter 18, verse 2, uh, here's the future. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. The long and true story written by, uh, well, God who writes the story of human history is that what happened to Babel in Genesis 11 as that great tower fell into the sand, crumbled into the sand, is actually what awaits all human rule set up against God as king. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Uh, the, the, the spoiler for all human history that, that is given to us here from the final part of history in Revelation is that Babylon shall fall. Now, there's the first city, Babylon. Here's the second, Jerusalem. It also has a long and true story. It's the city that God builds, that he builds to dwell with his people as their king, a, a city that's built on his promise that will never fall. Uh, trace the story of Jerusalem through the scriptures from, from Genesis through to Daniel 1, where in front of us it's a city covered in weakness and defeat. Trace it all the way through to the final pages of Revelation and again we're told the, her future as a city. 
Uh, you, perhaps you'll know the words. They're very famous words, words in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. There's the future for Jerusalem. The spoiler from the final part of history, the final pages of history in Revelation is that this throne in Jerusalem will outlast them all. Uh, That's the eternal reality. That's the big picture the Bible gives us. But zoom in now in Daniel chapter 1 on this moment in that long battle, this moment for one man, Daniel. What's it like? This is what Daniel's going to help us with. What's it like to try and hold on to faith in the midst of a battle like this? Not at the end, but in the midst of the battle like this. Uh, Two aspects are shown to us from chapter 1. Firstly, verses 1 and 2, we we see it as he lives in a city, Babylon, that is absolutely set against his God. Yeah, have a look again at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the history is that Babylon overthrows Jerusalem completely. This is the beginning of the siege. And verse 2, the, even the heart of Jerusalem, the temple where, where God dwelt with his people as their king, uh, even that is sacked. God appears completely defeated here in these opening verses, unable to stop the progress of this opposing king sweeping through his city and uh, dragged off he is to Babylon. And verse 2, tossed at the feet of the gods of Babel. Uh, This all occurred around 600 BC. We'll speak more of dates next week. Uh, It's when this account of Daniel was written. And as I say, more on that next week. But for now... Uh, Realise the magnitude of the moment that we're seeing here in these opening verses. It, it is the great crisis of the Old Testament. All of the promise that the city of Jerusalem had, all of the promise that God was their king and that he would reign forever, is he still king? Do the promises still stand? Here is the city set against God. But the second thing we see in this opening chapter about the experience of living in such a place, verses 3 to 7 is that it is a city set against God's people as well, uh, determined to see them fall back into line uh, under secular rule, not under God's rule. I wonder if you've noticed living in a secular city like Sydney that, that prides itself on diversity and tolerance of views, that, that actually in the end conformity to cultural values and views is the expected norm and there is intense pressure to fall into line if you're a good citizen. Don't be surprised by that. We have the same thing here. Uh, See the picture of it in in Babylon's program of conformity for those first exiles, including Daniel and the other men that are mentioned in this chapter. The process of assimilation of conformity, it's an ingenious four-part process. Uh, Step one, you can see it there in verse three. As they were taken from Jerusalem, uh, they took very specific people, nobility, the royal family, uh, young men of a particular kind, smart and healthy and educated, potential movers and shakers. It was an aim to sort of influence the culture of Jerusalem by starting with them and hoping there was a trickle-down effect. Step two, verse four, was they were to undertake a three-year undergraduate degree. 
They were to be immersed in the language and culture and literature of Babylon, soaking them in the Babylonian worldview until it, well, it was second nature. Step three, verse five, not only were they to be soaked into the worldview, they were to be soaked into the lifestyle. They, they were to be given, given the privilege of eating at the king's table. And finally, step four, verses six and seven, even their names were going to be changed. Uh, which was an attempt to change their identity. Uh, it's very clever, really. Uh, each of their names, these four men that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 1, they had names pointing to the fact that God was their king. Daniel, for instance, means the Lord is judge. But their new names pointed to the Babylonian gods. And so Daniel was to become Belshazzar, which means Marduk, who was one of the Babylonian false gods. Marduk will protect us. The pressure on these young men in Babylon was to become Babylonian, to fall into line. I wonder if you feel that pressure in the city that we live in to conform, to assimilate under secular rule. I recently heard a, a, a young man uh, starting work in uh, working life in, if you like, the real world, and the pressure to fit in started immediately. Uh, with the drinking culture of, uh, of his boss. You want to fit in here, you want to be normal, then fall into line. Now, it's not just young men that that happens to in a city like Sydney. I, I wonder if you've noticed in your own experience where these pressure points are to conform in your worldview or pressure to keep pace with the lifestyle of those around you in the city, the, the pressure to see your identity defined by the gods of this age rather than your God who is king. I wonder if you feel those pressure points. Do you, do you notice where they are? Do you, do you still feel them? How do you not lose yourself in a city that wants to build God out of the picture, completely out of the culture? I mean, is that actually possible? Is it possible to hold in a, in a secular city bold, hopeful faith in the living God? And no, not in some sort of uh, nominal sense of, yeah, of course, I've got a faith in God. No, to have that faith in God as king be the very beating heart of your identity. Well, if you look at verses 1 to 7, they actually say that the odds are stacked against that sort of faith in a city set against God and his people. It is as well the terrible musician Frank Zappa once said uh, this quote. He said, in the fight between you and the world, back the world. And yet watch Daniel here. Have a look, verse 7 and verse 8. Uh, we know already that the Babylonian system was very deliberate. They set about particular conformities. Uh, so verse 7, the chief officer set new names for them. That's what it says. But then look at the next verse, verse 8. But Daniel set, there's that word again, very deliberate, set his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. It's a deliberate and defiant decision in the midst of this culture. God's people slowly submerging into the Babylonian culture and then quite suddenly and without much fanfare, to be honest, Daniel simply says, enough. I mean, why at this point? Why take a stand on the food and the wine? There didn't appear to be complaints about the name change or the three-year undergraduate degree. He went along with all of that. And in fact, it's clear from the chapters that will follow in Daniel that, that what Daniel's doing here is not an ethic of avoidance of a world like ours, which I think can sometimes be the Christian response, can't it, if we feel uh, compromised and endangered and pressured to conform in, in a culture like this. Maybe we just get into our holy huddle and ignore it all. Well, no. 
read through the Old Testament and it is not uncommon to see believers like Daniel in the service of unbelieving rulers, as we'll see in this, this book. It's not uncommon in church either. Most of us, or most of you anyway, live and work in the real world. Daniel was not looking to avoid that because he knew that this is God's world. He knew that this is a good creation. This is a, a world to be involved in, not to be avoided. But why stop at food and wine? Why did he suddenly say no? And for Daniel, it's, it's clearly a big issue. It, it says there, verse 8, it's a matter of defilement if he was to do it. Uh, it. It's something that would muddy the waters of his faithfulness to God as king. And the key issue seems to be whose food it was and where that food would be eaten. The issue in the end is about table fellowship with the king of Babylon. Uh, right near the end of this book of Daniel, we're told in chapter 11 uh, that those who eat at the king's table, that there is an assumption that those who eat at that table are bound to the king. Their, their heart is with the king. They're for the king. They, they prioritise the king. There were expectations of you if you sat at his table. Uh, it was a statement of where your heart was. But for Daniel, his heart was already spoken for. He was bound to the Lord and no other alliance was going to challenge this. He would not sit at the table with the world in that way. It's exactly like we read in our other reading today, 1 John 2 verse 15, where God says to us, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. There is a decision to be made. Who has your heart? Well, what are we to make of this first look at Daniel in a city seeking to undermine his faith, seemingly though fearless in response to that, his eyes completely wide open to what was at stake and, and knowing exactly when to say enough. Now, whatever we make of Daniel, let me encourage you not to make the mistake of thinking that Daniel is the hero of the story that we're reading. As if Daniel is some figure pushing bravely into the unknown, into the darkness, seemingly against the odds. While that picture is true to an extent, it's not the full picture. Not even in these opening verses. Zoom out and you see the powerful reality behind Daniel's defiant actions. You see, Daniel knows the story of God's people. He knows the God of Jerusalem is still on his throne. He knows the promises of Jerusalem have not fall. He knows that the God of Jerusalem, who is king, has not lost grip on the story that he is writing in all of human history, even as Babylon roars against him. Uh, look with me for one more time at Daniel 1, and, and you'll see the unmistakable evidence that Daniel knew as he made this stand. It's highlighted by three words that are repeated actually three times for us in the chapter. The, these are the three words that change everything. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. If you're seeing the battle clearly, if you're seeing what God is doing in this scene, then bold and hopeful faith is not actually heroic in the end. It, it's obvious. It's rational. It's wise. Have a look with me. There's, there's three references to it. The first of them is there in verse 2, and it, it shows us that even in the midst of this city set against him, the Lord is present and he's sovereign. Look closely at that chaotic scene in verses 1 and 2. Uh, and what you have there actually is a theological explanation of the historical data that is here before us. So the moment that the Babylonian Empire swept through Jerusalem. Uh, have a look. Uh, 
In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then this, verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. There's two hands at work in this huge moment of history. There's the mighty hand of the king of Babylon, but that hand is only able to move because God's hand has given the kingdom to him. God is not defeated in this moment, nor is he absent. He is active and he's very much in charge. Uh, Listen to this, uh, the way one commentator I I, I came across this week uh, described this moment. He says, it's as if Nebuchadnezzar is playing on the beach with his toys and he's building sandcastles and he's revving up all these earth movers. He's making lots of noise. and, And then you discover that he's actually just a little kid on God's vast beach. That's what verse two says. We see here the powerful reality behind the ebbs and flows of human history. We see why did Jerusalem fall? It fell because the Lord gave his king. But it's a faithful sovereignty before us. He's actually in this moment in verse 2, he's acting on his promise that he gave to his people repeatedly to judge them because of their unfaithfulness. I mean, listen to these words well before this moment in history in Isaiah 39 verse 6. God said to his people, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors, all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. He's doing exactly as he said he would. But his sovereignty is not just um, uh, uh, faithful, it's persevering. The Lord gave this day to Babylon, that's obvious. And in time, we'll see the Lord take away from Babylon. As we seek to hold on to bold and hopeful faith, remember how he has shown us this persevering sovereignty, how we can be sure of it as we attempt to live by faith. We can be sure of it because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who in, uh, after his resurrection was able to declare this. This is what we know for sure. This is why we can act with boldness and certainty with faith. Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given to me. There's that word again. He's king forever, Jesus. Even as cities like Babylon or Sydney or wherever rage against him in the sandpit, he remains king. Here's the second picture. Have a look at verse 9. We see there that the Lord is present and he's actually working for the good of his people. As Daniel takes his stand, he does so completely confident in God's provision. And if you look at verse 9, you see God provide. Uh, We're told there the Lord gave Daniel favour and compassion before the official. It's a quiet sovereignty, isn't it? Here behind the scenes, God is utterly aware of the the machinations going on in the palace as Daniel takes this stand. He's aware and involved in the detail and he's providing for the good of his people, Daniel and these other men. And again, as we seek to hold on to bold and hopeful faith, we must be sure that God reigns in this world for our good. And no, it may not always take the form that we would choose. And we may have questions of the form of that provision. And we'll see that actually in this book. Wait till we get to Daniel 3. But we also must see the bigger story. And remember, the one who is king in Jesus Christ has shown us he is utterly committed to our good. And listen to these words from Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. He who did not spare his own son, but, here's the word again, gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give 
us all things. He's sovereign and he's working for our good. Uh, One more picture near the end of the chapter. We see there in verse 17 and again verse 21, the Lord is present and in this scene he is victorious and will be forever. As the chapter comes to an end, verses 17 and 19, he he gives Daniel and his three companions such provision of knowledge and wisdom that they go from uh, being dragged off into exile to the top of the class, to the heads of their generation. By the end of the chapter, the tables are starting to completely turn, aren't they? From captives of a subjugated kingdom to leaders of the generation, leaders of those who will serve the king of Babylon. And in this, again, we see the Lord's sovereignty at play. He's got a much bigger plan than just these verses. He has put his man Daniel at the very heart of this city that is set against him. And we'll watch that play out in the coming chapters. And look at this. Have a look at how the chapter ends. I love this. It's so subtle, but it is a devastating blow to the pomp and noise of Babylon. Have a look at verse 1, see them raging there, and then look at verse 21, and we're simply told this, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now the truth is that's 70 years after the siege of Jerusalem. 70 years later, Babylon themselves would be conquered by Cyrus and the Persian Empire. Babylon would fall into the sandpit, never to rise again. But God's man, Daniel, now probably about 85 years old, remains standing there. Uh, This book of Daniel that we're exploring has just begun. What can we conclude so far? What of our question that can we keep bold and hopeful faith in God as king without denying reality? Well, Frank Zappa would say, back the world. And if you look at our world, if you even look at our city, you'd say the evidence is there that Frank is right. And it would be easy, wouldn't it, to be submerged into a faithless culture because, and become what, what C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the author, said, yeah, we, we could become men without chests, having no boldness, no hope. But here's the truth. Frank Zappa is wrong. See the bigger story that the whole Bible reveals. See it here, even just in Daniel chapter 1, or, or hear it in our other reading. Did you hear 1 John 2.17? The world and its desires... They'll pass away. They'll fall into the sandpit. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Reality is this. Though all the Babylons of this world may rise up against Jerusalem and rage against it, still yet God the King reigns. That's the gospel displayed fully and wonderfully in the Lord Jesus Christ who has for us defeated the enemies that, uh, enemies that are opposing his promises to us conquered our sin, conquered Satan and smashed death to pieces. The one of whom it will be said in those last days, as we read in Revelation, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that bold and hopeful faith in you as king is wise, that the evidence is there, that we can see it in the Lord Jesus. We see it in the way you move the details of history as we see before us in these pages of Daniel. We pray, Father, that you would show us this, show us your rule, show us that you are ruling for our good and that you are victorious forever. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.